Welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode 62. We've got something special for you this time. Jen Waldman is the artistic director, and Josh Friedman is the managing director of Ithaca, New York's Hangar Theater. The Hangar is a 349-seat SPT-8, that small professional theater. Jen and Josh have extremely busy jobs, and we've been trying to get them into our studios for a while. And we finally managed to synchronize our calendars with them, fortunately, right at the beginning of their 41st season. Upon reflection, though, we realized that what we wanted to cover was way too much for one episode. So what we decided to do was a two-part interview. You're listening to the first part now. The second will air later in the season. Both Jen and Josh have long and impressive careers working in theater across the country and on Broadway. The list of details would seriously take a third episode. So we won't. But we do encourage you to look them up on the Hangar website, hangertheater.org. For now, we'll just jump right in. We started off by asking a question that's almost always on the mind of some subscribers and play submitters everywhere. How does the Hangar choose which plays to present? You've got four shows for your main stage this year. How did these particular four shows get there? And to augment that, one of the things we all know about theater is you don't always get to produce what you want. You get to produce what fills the seats. So there are demographics involved. Um, So how do you find the balance between what you believe needs to be on the stage, okay, and what you believe needs to be on the stage in order to fill the seats. So you've got four shows. You've got God of Carnage. You've got Spring Awakening, Hound of the Baskervilles, and Tally's Folly. Mm-hmm. How did they get there? Yeah, it's quite a smorgasbord, isn't it? You seem to be covering the board when it comes to demographics here. Let me first talk about how we selected these plays, and then I can talk a little bit about the demographic that we're okay, appealing to. So um, when when we started planning last year's season, because I had never been – planning a season here at the hangar before I felt like I really needed to give myself some pretty specific parameters to work in. Otherwise, I have, you know, the world is my oyster, which is great. But um, in order to kind of whittle it down to a, a manageable idea, I put some parameters in place. So the first was that we wanted to do plays where the audience would have a completely different environmental experience each time they came into the space. So one set might be an interior, the next one might be an abstracted idea, the next one might be an exterior. So uh, we were really looking for environmental changes to happen so that when the audience walks in, they go, oh, this is nothing like what it was when we saw the play two weeks ago. You actually considered the graphics and the environmental first. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Interesting take. I would, I would not have thought of that. Yeah. Well, you know, we're so lucky to work in a thrust where you could really surround the audience with scenery if you wanted to. So I think taking that into account is really important. Um, And then we wanted to do um, plays that would allow each actor to really have kind of their moment to shine. We were doing plays that are smaller cast, in particular the musical. You know, we had nine actors in the musical last year. So when we were looking for things, I, I wanted to celebrate each one of the artists that were going to be on the stage. So and that musical was? Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors, one of my favorites. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty good production. I was very, very pleased with it. And then we were looking to also 
have a diverse company of actors through the summer, not just in terms of racial and uh, ethnic backgrounds, but also in terms of age range and where in the country they're coming from and um, all of that kind of stuff. So we were able to do that. And then this year wanted to kind of keep those ideas, but then build on them. So one of the things that was missing last year that we wanted to do this year was have a female playwright represented. So hence we're opening with God of Carnage. Right. We wanted to do kind of a a rock musical. So this will go into the demographics conversation in a moment, but that's how Spring Awakening ended up on the table, this idea of electric instruments and kind of a very contemporary sensibility. And one of the things that's been really important to us, and I left this out of what we were talking about with last year's season, is to kind of bridge the gap from when kids start going to the theater and they go to children's theater, and then when they start attending theater with the grown-ups. So that's where Hound of the Baskervilles comes in. And last year we did Around the World in 80 Days. And then I wanted to include an American classic this season. So Lanford Wilson, Tally's Folly. And I was really shocked to learn that we had never staged it before. So this will be the first Tally's Folly. It is. It is. And it's a beautiful play. So that's how those four shows came to be this season. The female playwright, the rock musical, the family friendly, and the American classic. As an artistic director, once you get to choosing, th- and you meant, you, you you did mention you wanted to get a female playwright. You said that specifically. How hard is it for female playwrights to get produced these days in your experience? Because I've, I've heard this argument and this issue not only all over Facebook, but it's a common one at a lot of the conferences. What's what's the state of things? Is it getting better? Is is, is are they getting more? Are women getting more opportunities? I think the state of the art for the female playwright in the off Broadway and nonprofit world has improved considerably in the last ten years. Broadway is a different story. The commercial theater tends to not open its doors as willingly to female playwrights for whatever reason. I mean, we were talking with Steve Pasek, who's our associate artistic director and who's directing God of Carnage, and he mentioned that Yasmina Reza's play was only the third written by a female to ever win Best Play. I mean, that's just crazy when you think about that. For playwrights on my level who are still trying to get discovered, okay, and still trying to get productions... We look at Broadway as huge budget extravaganzas of either remakes or things geared for more spectacle than absolute theater. Okay, uh, as we look, because we're, quote, writing plays or whatever it happens. We're not writing for Broadway. We're writing for off-Broadway at this particular time. Is there a perceived separation between the two levels are they looked at as two different entities um or is it just is it just looked at as the crest of the mountain Ooh, that is a tricky question i mean i the short answer would be yes i think they're looked at differently not necessarily one better one worse but the the audiences that you're playing to in a broadway production once you have kind of used up all of the new york-based audience you're talking about tourists many of them international tourists. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the off-Broadway market, you're looking to fill 
a House of 300 seats and you're appealing mostly to, if not New Yorkers, uh, theater lovers and mostly American theater lovers. So there's a big difference in what sells. Right. So, I mean, a a lot of, of people who are kind of theater artists, and I'm using... I'm using air quotes for those of you at home. Artists mm-hmm. are really excited what's, about what's going on in the off-Broadway scene. That's not to say the Broadway scene isn't where it's at. I mean, there's, there are two um, shows coming to – one of them recently opened and the other one is opening this summer that started at the public um, in an off-Broadway house, Hamilton and Fun Home, which are considered groundbreaking, life-changing. It's a musical about Alexander Hamilton, but it's it's taken the place by storm. It really has. I mean, the thing that's kind of revolutionary about yeah, it yeah. <laughs> is that it is the story of of American history being told by a contemporary America. So when you look at the landscape of that of that time versus the the kind of beautiful, vibrant, colorful cast. Um, this is a contemporary America looking back on where we came from and using hip hop as the means for communication. I mean, it's just so exciting. So that kind of stuff is getting to Broadway and that will change the face of theater, not only in how it's written, but who it's accessible to. So that kind of stuff is really exciting. And that's, you know, Hamilton may go on to run for years and years. Who knows? Um, but the legacy that it leaves is what's going to be kind of its its most critical mark. Whereas there are, you know, other New York Broadway shows that are being developed not to necessarily change the state of the art, but to attract an audience. So you, you've got the disparity. Both sides of the coin exist. Exactly. It's attractive. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I tend to look at Broadway, uh, the difference. Is, is, is Broadway the pinnacle? Is that what people are looking for? For me, no. I, I uh, lived and worked in New Jersey for a long time, did some work in New York, and decided right off the bat I wasn't interested in the Broadway theater. Um, not because it's on Broadway, but because of the, it's the commercial uh, nature of it. What I was interested in is the not-for-profit world or uh, I don't like the word not-for-profit, but for impact theaters. Right. Um, and, um, and there's something that's different that's going, that, that, that happens in the regional world. And I've done several um, Broadway shows that have transferred onto Broadway and worked with some Broadway producers. It's a very different experience to work on a show that is going to Broadway where you're, where you're, you're working on an enhanced production and there's Broadway producers on it than when you're working on a regional theater production. And the biggest difference is at what point you're talking about the art and at what point you're talking about the budget. In the regional theater... One depends upon the other. Well, you know, the commercial theater is there to make money. That's not to say that that the artists that are involved in it and indeed the producers that are involved in it don't care about the art. They certainly do care about the art. And if it's not good art, it won't make money in the long run. But but there are other elements to making money or to making back your investment and then making money that the Broadway theater considers um, and and, and has to put those above other considerations. The regional theater, not so much. Um, the what I have found in the regional theaters that that we're always focused on 
the quality, the impact, the effect on the community um, more significantly than what happens in the bottom line. Now, that is probably why we have a regional theater that has a cumulative, uh, cumulative unrestricted net assets in the negatives. And we have an industry that is indeed um, uh, on the brink, let's say, sure. um, uh, as opposed to the Broadway world where it's not. I mean, there's people making um, – uh, not just artists making good money, but the producers are making good money, and, and these are, are properties that, that are doing well in many, many cases. Right. We're talking about multi-million dollar budgets. Yeah. Oh, in, the, oh, yeah. in the 20s. In, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the, the king of spectacle in these things. So when you look out at your audiences throughout the season, all right, your subscriber base, who do you see? Um, I, what I see is a, a pretty wide diversity um, in in the audience. Uh, I feel like our I, in a lot of lot of towns that I've worked at, the audience is really getting pretty gray. I don't find our audience that way. I think our audience actually falls on the young side uh, compared to what I've seen in, in a lot of other houses. How do you maintain a younger audience? How do you get youngsters? young people into the theater because, as you just mentioned, a lot of theaters, you know, you look out and the audience is kind of gray, all right? And people have told me, well, theater is, you know, it's an older generation's pastime, younger generation, if you can't crowbar them away from your Xbox, all right, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? But you seem to have a good range. How, how, how is that? How are you making well, that me, happen? Programming has a lot to do with it. Our audience does tend to be, it's not so much about age, it's about time. So we tend to see people coming in and becoming subscribers after their kids are old enough that they can stay home on their own. And that's been true for, for the last 20 years. Sometimes people say, well, the audience is getting older and what are you going to do when they're all gone? Well, there's new old people every day. Um, so, you know, we keep making new old people. So we are. The um, we we are. We're yeah. There's a new old person factory right <laughs> around the corner. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. 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 So uh, and I think really what it is is that, that people do get to a time where they say, okay, I, I, I have the time now that I that I want to spend um, doing particular things, and uh, I have two little kids at home. Going out is a very expensive endeavor, and on top of it, it's uh, you know you're exhausted by the, by the end of the day. The other thing that we try to do is we try to have, uh, entice younger people to come. We know that if kids see theater as children, if parents take their children to see theater, they become theater lovers. They may go away from it, and but they will come back to it. Um, so there are some things that we do in in that uh, in that way. Kid stuff is one of them. We um, we want to provide live drama experiences to kids, and hopefully down the road they will have developed an appreciation for that. So we do five kid stuff shows each summer. The first four are acted by our lab company and are directed by our drama league directing fellows. And then the fifth show in the kids stuff season is a musical that is performed by local kids. And this year, I think we were saying today we have 52 kids who are going to be in Bye Bye Birdie at the end of the summer. So this season we're opening with The Emperor's New Clothes in a musical adaptation by the writing team that did Ragtime and Once on This Island. Uh, Then we're doing Stuart Little. Then Red Riding Hood, a musical adaptation of Red Riding Hood, uh, in which the wolf is played by a girl and Red Riding Hood is played by a boy. 
which is going to be pretty fun. And uh, the fourth play is Charlotte's Web. And then closing with Bye Bye Birdie. So it's a it's a pretty great season for kids or titles that they will really know and love. The thing that I think is unique about our children's theater season, our kids stuff season, is that we have no intention of dumbing down the shows or playing down to the kids. You know, we think of kids as being pretty sophisticated and smart and ready to interact and take all of this on. So we try to, you know, challenge them, meet them at their high level and right. challenge their way of thinking with the shows. Our kids stuff plays for many years also, and, and this year is true as well, is they tend to be page to stage productions. So um, other than Bye Bye Birdie, all the other shows that you see in our season are popular kids books. Um, so kids have, you know, come to it with some familiarity. But it also says something about using your imagination to create drama in your life, right, to create a live experience in front of you and how um, how we adapt other pieces of art um, to the stage. So I think – and kids have fun with that. You mentioned um... – First the lab company, and then you mentioned that uh, Bye Bye Birdie was going to be done by local kids. And because I live here and I know the hangar pretty well, I know this is the next generation school of acting. So you are opening up your theater and your educational resources to a whole new generation. Let's talk a little bit about the lab company, who's in it, what happens, you know, over the course of the summer. And then let's talk a little bit about um, the next generation, because I've seen kids go into the next generation and now they're touring someplace dancing in Oshkosh or so, you know, whatever. I think these programs are exceptional and, and uh, are very much a reason I was attracted to The Hangar. Um, so the lab company is made up of mostly undergraduate students. Some of them are recent grads. We have 16 actors, four directors, and one choreographer who come to The Hangar for eight weeks, and they go through an intensive immersive hands-on training programs. So they have master classes six nights a week, mm -hmm. and then they have rehearsal six days a week. So they're very long days, um, and you know they're at the age where they can handle that. <laughs> it's theater boot camp. I mean, yeah. it truly is. The thing that I think is so unique about our program is that they'll have a movement master class on Tuesday night, and then that group of people are together the next Wednesday morning in rehearsal and say, let's try this thing that we learned in class ne last night. So whereas when you're in your undergraduate program, you're learning a lot of concepts and philosophies, but you don't necessarily always have a way to practically apply them. We give them that direct line from the classroom into the rehearsal room, which is pretty great. And this year, the lab company comes from, I believe, 13 different universities and uh, are our in enrollment or our applications for enrollment this year were up by over 250%. So we're wow. we're pretty excited with the way the lab company is moving right now. Well, from my experience, the lab company has always been one of the highlights of the hangar. Um, don't know if you know, but I was the photographer here from 1998 to like 2001. When I get to the wedge, which is where a lot of the lab company kids you know, produce their own material, I saw some of the most groundbreaking, radical imaginative. These are kids with no limits. Mm -hmm. These are kids still in the throes of growing, of learning, of not recognizing any kind of boundaries. And some of the shows I saw, they were absolutely, they're still with me. Part of that is the uh, philosophy and approach behind the lab company. The minute 
that that these students get here, they're told there are no boundaries. And 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 we tell them, you know, dream big. There's nothing that can't be done. Um, we don't use the word that can't can't happen or that's impossible. So um, <clears throat> I think that makes a huge difference. They and they and they really do commit and they kind of go, you know, I mean, I've seen we've seen as you said, it's incredible work in the in the wedge series, yeah. um, and and I would say in the kid stuff series as well because it's uh, good children's theater uh, can be is difficult. Uh, often we think of children's theater as being a bit overdone, a bit sort of overacted. Um, that's not what we do. We say you're going to really commit. You need to commit to yeah. being a turtle in a race, but yeah. you're really committing to it and. Um, it's different than acting it. You know what I'm talking about, right? Now, I think this audience will know this is you're not acting a turtle. You are the turtle. You have to commit, but the, they're really the kids are great. But a lot of it has to do with with what Jen and the other teachers do uh, when they're getting here in the immersion pro process. Imagine that I'm you know an applicant. I've been accepted to the lab company. What are you going to teach me? What am I? What's uh, how? What are my days like? Okay, so we the first week we do fundamentals of acting to make sure everyone's kind of on the same page about vocabulary. Uh, we look at um, lots of different schools of thought on acting, but the book that we primarily use is *The Intent to Live* by Larry Moss, who I think is like the greatest living acting teacher right now. And uh, then we go into some movement work. So we do viewpoints, lob on, star bodies. We do um, clowning. This year, they're going to be doing some mask work. We do text analysis, score analysis. So all of this fundamental building block stuff at the beginning of the program and then we get into more kind of specialty master classes as the summer goes on and a lot of that is built with our drama league directing fellows who each teach a class a week-long class for the lab company over the course of the summer so like this year one of our lab directors I mean drama league directors is not only this great director but she is a professional Indian dancer so she's going to be doing a week of master classes in Indian dance because they do so much storytelling through movement. And then we'll talk about how to kind of use that to influence some of the work they're doing on stage. And it'll just, it, it kind of coincides beautifully with what's going to be going on in the wedge at that point, because the last show in the wedge season this year has a whole choreography element. So okay. we, we try to create a program that is really um, that builds on itself. So we structure it so the basics are at the beginning and then the more kind of advanced stuff happens throughout the summer. How far away do you draw audiences and what kind of marketing do you use for this? 75% of our audience is from Tompkins County. 25% of our audience is from outside of Tompkins County. Within the county, we're, um, we're advertising in the newspapers, we're advertising on the radio. Uh, we're advertising with flyers and uh, brochures. Our Playbill magazine, we distribute quite widely. We get about 2,000 of them out around the, uh, the uh, community and the surrounding towns. Um, and um, uh, for those folks that are outside of the county, there are a couple things that, that we do. We're running a campaign this year, which we call Come for the, Gor uh, Come for the Gorges, Stay for a Show. 
and that's a campaign uh, both in print and flyers and radio uh, that we're running outside of um, the county all the way uh, as far as Buffalo and Albany. Um, so um, on the throughway and in print and media and summer guides and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the um, our, our internet is a is an important presence and okay, and and growing. Social yeah, social media and the internet are, are growing. Um, uh, growing areas where we're marketing more and more. Although it's an interesting thing, and, and we can talk about it maybe a little bit more in our in our second part of this. Sure, but yeah. um, the, the people receive so many messages. You know, we we all thought that the internet was going to be God's answer to small marketing budgets, um, <laughs> right? And um, right, and now um, it's a it's no longer free to advertise on the internet as as it sort of was at one point. And B, people are bombarded with they say four thousand marketing messages a day. So um, that's becoming a little more challenging. And looking right. at how do we how do we do more targeted campaigns uh, on the internet? Word of mouth, of course, is extremely important for us. People come and see shows and, and then uh, tell their friends and, and do that. We're running some campaigns um, around those concepts. If you mm-hmm. like the show, bring somebody to come back uh, around the town. Our playbill is one of the things in the last three years. We changed our playbill three years ago, and um, uh, we changed it into a magazine. So instead of if, uh, producing a playbill for the – for people to see when they come and see the shows. We're producing a once-a-year magazine. It's an 80-page magazine with information about the theater, information about the uh, um, the theater scene. Uh, there's a great article called Ithaca is Theater that um, was put together this year by Rachel Hockett, who runs the Homecoming Players, and um, talks about all the different theater that's going on in uh, in Ithaca, including your your organization, yeah, in Wolf's Trap, yeah, French Festival, and and Wolf's Mouth, Wolf's Mouth is that, yeah, yes. um, but um, uh, and and that's a mag. We we distribute that everywhere, and and part of that is because we want to we really want to engage our audiences. We want people to have an opportunity to read about the shows before they come and see the plays. Right. We recognize that when you sit down in the theater in the dark for ten minutes before the show starts, it's not prime reading time. Um, and um, uh, we hope that, that people will read the material beforehand and we'll give them a level of uh, appreciation that will be a little higher than uh, if they don't get a chance to do it. So, And that's available on the Internet as well. Let's jump back to the artistic side one more time. Casting. All right. You guys cast nationally. Is that is that correct? That is correct. Oh so... We've got – how far away do you hold auditions or how do, how do you manage that? It's very interesting. Um, over the last, I would say, even five years, the casting process has changed so much because of technology. So we had people auditioning for us in California, but they were doing it online. It's kind of amazing. So, how does, how does that work out? Are people actually skyping their auditions now? No, they put themselves on tape. I'm using air quotes again, air folks quotes. at home. Uh, so they put themselves on tape. So essentially, we send them the sides that we would have seen. Were they able to make it to us in person in New York City or up here in Ithaca? And then they tape themselves and send it in. And then I will give if if it's a performance that I'm interested in exploring further, I'll go back to them with notes and adjustments, just like there would be in an audition room, and then they retape, and then they send it again. So it 
it's a totally different world than when I was an auditioning person. Right. I mean, completely different. But, you know, there is something to be said for being in the same room with someone and breathing oxygen with them. So, mm -hmm. you know, I will always prefer an in-person audition. But there were several people who couldn't make the initial auditions for shows because they were out of town or whatever the reason. And so I was able to see their work and then say, okay, when you get back into town, let's meet in person and we'll do a callback in person. So where do you hold the actual physical auditions? So here in Ithaca, we do it right here. Well, not right here in this dressing room, but in, yeah, in the hangar theater. Yeah. We do two weekends of calls. The first weekend is the required equity EPA, equity principal audition. Right. And then the second weekend is an open call, which is the one that's really well attended. And this year was just out of control because of Spring Awakening. We had mm -hmm. kids coming from sure. driving 12 hours each way to come audition. I mean, it was insane and so much fun. And then we do callbacks here at the theater. And then in New York City, we hold most of our auditions at NOLA Studios, which is a rehearsal and audition space in Midtown. Okay. So how we, we would love to see more equity actors here in town come out for auditions. Um, that was the, the first, you know, we start here. We want to cast locally if we can uh, and if there's the right people. And, um, but that's what Jen was referring to when she said the equity principal auditions, not that well attended. In fact, we had more people drive up from New York um, to audition at least one day than, than we did folks that live in this area. Yeah, I mean, I if I I haven't done the math, but my guess is that 80% of the people who came to our equity principal auditions were not from Ithaca. And we are we think of ourselves as a local theater. We right. do job in people. We would prefer to use the local talent. So guess this is our, our loving nudge to those of you out there that live in the Ithaca area. Please do come out and see us next year. Ithaca people, come on, get it together. Show up for the auditions. <laughs> How many people are on the casting committee? How many people process the auditions? This year we had a, an unmanageable number of applicants. So that we was my second question. Yes. Yeah. So we have... Uh, we use Breakdown Services, which is an online digital submission service, and we send those breakdowns out to agents, and then we also send them to a website called Actors Access, which allows actors to self-submit, actors who are not working with agents, because we don't want to miss out on talent just because someone's unrepresented. So for our – are there 23 roles in this year's season – I have to count. Don't quote me on that, but something like 23. We had over 6,000 people request yeah. audition appointments. So I was going through them. Our casting director, Elise Hurden, was going through them. We had two casting interns. And then I had a team of my friends from New York help me go through the Spring Awakening submissions because there were so many that right. the – Four of us, we're not going to be able to do it by ourselves. But once we get down to the kind of small group that we're going to actually see, it starts to get really, really exciting. <laughs> but we had some stories, which I'd just love to share some of this Spring Awakening stuff, because it was unlike anything I've ever experienced in an audition room ever. And I didn't realize until we got to auditions what was going on. But essentially, the kids who are now old enough 
to play the kids in the show were 10, 11, 12 years old when the show came out. Mm -hmm. And so they were going through that adolescent phase that the show is about. And um, the Spring Awakening score was like the soundtrack of their youth. So now that they're the right age to be in the show, this is why we had people driving 12 hours each direction to come in and sing 16 bars of a song. These kids are obsessed with the show. And, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the show, but the lyrics are very poetic and kind of image-based. So I would ask people, you know, what is a mirror blue night to you? Or what is a purple summer to you? And they would tell me these stories that were mind-blowing. Um, and one in particular that has haunted me in a, in a really good way. Um, yes. Well, actually two. One was a young man came in and shared that he, when he was a preteen, was having thoughts of suicide and he went and saw Spring Awakening and he saw himself in the character of Moritz Stiefel, who I don't want to put any spoilers in here, but um, there there's suicidal thoughts there. And he said that he left the show and thought to himself, I don't want to be like that. I want to live. I mean, these kinds of things coming out in the audition room. I mean, we're weeping together. It's just amazing. And then another another young man shared with me that he saw the show with his mom. And there's a scene in Act Two where two young men have this kind of romantic kiss. Mm -hmm. And he looked at his mom in that moment and she looked at him and they had this unspoken kind of glimmer of understanding, and he knew that that would be the night that he would come out to his mom after seeing Spring Awakening. And these are the stories that are being shared with me in the audition room. It was like the most magical experience. I mean, even if we never got into rehearsal, I feel like I've already had an experience with the show. We haven't even started yet. I had done an interview with Michael Mayer, who had directed the original Spring Awakening and is a Hangar alum. Uh, so he did an interview for our Playbill, and I was asking him kind of like, why do you think this show is so important to people and and rock musicals at this moment in time and he was saying you know the younger generation is looking for an intersection of all of their interests and whereas we used to go to a musical to kind of look back the the music of spring awakening is so present moment it feels even though the story is of an 1890s german group of school kids the music is of this generation, and it feels like this intersection of a love for theater and a love for rock happening at the at the same moment. So I think, you know, Josh was saying, um, with our Kids Stuff show, we're trying to give a lot of kids their first theatrical experience, and that's so important to us and so special, and we want to shepherd them from Kids Stuff to the main stage. If someone didn't have a Kids Stuff experience, if they're an adult now and haven't had a first-time theater experience, Spring Awakening would be a perfect thing to come to because you'll you'll feel so at home when you hear the music. It feels like listening yeah. to the radio. The season opens when? Great <laughs> Trick June, question. June, Aha. June 11th is our first performance. June 11th, yeah. God of it's Carnage. It's okay, a it's a Thursday. All right, so folks, be warned. You'll hear about it in the arts calendar. This is going to uh, wind down the first part of our two-episode interview with uh, Jen Waldman, Artistic Director, and Josh Friedman, Managing Director of Ithaca, New York's Hangar Theater. We will thank you so much, and we will catch up with you both later in the summer.